0: Do you manage your own IT for distributed teams in Asia? You know how painful it is. Essaval helps your in house team by taking tough tasks off their hands and giving them the tools to manage IT effectively. Get help across eight countries in Asia Pacific, which includes onboarding, procurement, device management, real time IT support, offboarding, and more. Gain full control of all your IT infrastructure in one place with our state-of-the-art platform. Check out e s e v e l dot com, and get a demo today. Use our referral code BRAVE for three months free. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to BRAVE. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Al, a VC, founder, and father. Mondays for no BS commentary on the latest startup news with Shuyen Ko, managing partner of Hustle Fund. Thursdays for in-depth interviews of changemakers across the region sharing about the highs and lows of their lives. Join us and over 10,000 subscribers at www.bravesea.com for transcripts, analysis, and community. Hey, Cheyenne. I'm really excited. We've been uh, brainstorming lots of different topics. And I think that what we were excited to explore was less about what we know and more about what we're curious about. Right? And you mentioned that you're curious about luxury. So love to hear your thoughts this wonderful morning.
1: As you can see, I'm really into luxury. I was listening to the Acquired podcast, which if you haven't listened to their stuff, it's great. They basically tell the history of iconic businesses. And so they were telling the story of LVMH, the luxury conglomerate. And I learned so much from it. And so I was just thinking about... First, one thing is LVMH is a sort of European luxury conglomerate. It is founded by Bernard Arnault, which he is not, he wasn't the original founder of any of these brands, right? He basically acquired them. And I think now they have like 75 luxury brands under the LVMH flag. But I think there are a couple interesting ideas there around like what he believed and allowed him to assemble. I don't know if at the face of it people necessarily all thought about. And one was just that you can get economies of scale by assembling luxury brands. And so I think normally you think of luxury as something that is limited. That's what makes it special. Not everyone can have it. And the idea that the economies of scale actually come in terms of talent and supply chain. So supply chain is an easier one to think about, right? We are like, okay, I buy lots of leather. I buy lots of jewels or whatever it is. But the talent piece I thought was really interesting, which is that If you're working inside a single family-owned brand, you can't really advance unless like your boss leaves. But if you own a family of brands, you can have opportunities to move laterally and learn from lots of different brands. And so you can disproportionately attract better talent, both on the creative side and on the managerial talent side, which you kind of need both of for a luxury business. And then the third thing that I learned I thought was pretty interesting was that like, most luxury brands didn't really advertise until relatively recently, because what it was the nature of luxury, like if you think about LV, they start out making like suitcases for royalty. Like you don't need to advertise to royalty. There's only so many of them. They know each other. But that with the rise of basically global income and the internet, advertising actually became so luxury. If you look at luxury as a percent spend, like I think LVMH groups spend like 20 billion a year on marketing, which blows my mind. And so you also get economies of scale from that, right? Because you are an ad buyer, you're a media buyer across all these different channels. And then, of course, I mentioned this to Jeremy and Jeremy's like, actually, yeah. I have lots of thoughts about luxury, which is also shocking because he always wears the same black t-shirt. So I find it very amusing that the two of us want to talk about luxury. But yes, Jeremy, over to you.
0: <laughs> yes, i have always wearing Uniqlo. And I think the interesting part is that when we think about luxury, it's such an interesting topic because luxury is such a billion dollar category, billion dollar industry, and there are great folks, really smart folks, that are doing it. And they do all these things in marketing that are totally contrary to what most marketers in startup land does, right? I mean, for example, like you said earlier, right, which is for marketing, we need to make it as easy as possible when they click the but they see the ad, they click on it, they buy it, and then we're going to measure the whole attribution of that. And we want that transaction to happen like five minutes. No, one minute. No, 30 seconds in a one-click checkout, right? And then next thing I know, I'm like watching this line at Hermes Bag Store, right? And then you see this gated, like 20 people in a row, all waiting in line for their Hermes bags. And obviously the store has plenty of space for 20 folks to be in it, but it's like this slowing down experience, the making it the line. There's an interesting dynamics, right? That is just very contrary to what startup marketing is all about. And I think that makes me always very excited because obviously it's working, otherwise not a billion dollar category. So what are the, not necessarily the tactics, right? But what's the deeper psychology, I think, of luxury and perhaps mainstream goods. But what does it show about marketing and the human psyche, right?
1: Well, the thing is that it's not something that you like instantly decide to buy, right? It's a considered purchase, but it's also that you're not buying it for the features. You're buying it for like the lifestyle they painted to you, like that, oh, if I have this, like I am part of this lifestyle idea and what it says to other people about you when you have that good, which I think is, I don't know. You can argue that maybe Apple starts to be that, right? Like, hey, you could buy the same Android phone with like similar features for much cheaper, but you're an Apple user. But it's still kind of feature driven, I think, in technology and most startup products versus luxury, which is like, do you need a $20,000 handbag? I mean, you could get like a $20 handbag from Walmart that does the same thing, which is like carry goods around. But that you're not, it's like function is almost irrelevant to it.
0: One thing I've learned, and I want to say this is not from me, this was due to a wonderful class on luxury marketing Harvard that I got to visit was really about different types of luxury, right? So different attributes and people use different parts of that piano keyboard. Right? So for example, there's a material is an attribute. So for example, natural materials over synthetic materials, so, so forth. There's technological performance. So it's like the most technology, the most cutting edge, so, so forth, right? Then the other one is really about story, right? The narrative that helps drive that dynamic. Then limited access is another version of that, which is not everybody gets to have it. Some people get to have it, the less people have it, the better. Then there's the rarity dynamic, which is not really like, you can limit it and it's still pretty common, but it's really like it's the rare material, the rare this, the rare that, right? So some sort of like implied scarcity dynamic of it. And then like you said, there's a signaling effect, right? What does it mean to other people? What does it project in terms of lifestyle? I'm sure there's a couple more that they shared last time. But I thought it was an interesting piece which is like luxury brands kind of play it like a little bit of a symphony in different ads, right? Oh, another one is Legacy which is like it's not for you it's for the next generation, right? So this the last one is environmental actually. Environmental health, sustainability is actually a form of cost consumption. Yeah, because I thought it was a really interesting thing because it basically is saying I can afford to be carbon neutral because I'm not the kind of person who buys the cheapest electricity. I buy the twice expensive electricity just because it's renewable so I thought it was interesting and I, and that actually made me broaden my view because I think when we think luxury we think of like LVMH right? we think of champagne but I think luxury is not just the category which we define in industry but it's also the attributes that people are trying to inject into the products and the truth is like you say is you can buy a $10,000 phone now right? there are $10,000 microphones there are $10,000 lots of things that are just like really I think they're not necessarily luxury because they still have a very strong technological base so there's a but I think the core of luxury is that, like you said, it's not just the lifestyle, but it says it's like, this is for performance, right? Whatever your performance is, right? If you're a socialite, you know, a handbag is performance. You are being compared mark to mark across everybody else. I remember I went to a party and wonderful lady, great time. And I had a wonderful chat with her about school and daycare and so, so forth. It was the first day of school, right? And then my wife came by to get me and she's like, Jeremy, we the to go. And I walked out and then I was walking out and she was like, wow, she's wearing a hundred thousand dollars on her, right? She's rich. I was like, oh, I had no idea because I just, I thought she was this well put together, just a normal parent. But my wife just clocked her immediately on the brands and the signals and the symbols. And it's kind of like the same way. Sometimes when I see someone with like an iPhone, right, and then you can tell like, oh, it's like now it's like the the latest iPhone 14, right? With the little dynamic island. It doesn't have the notch anymore. Mine, mine is an ugly notch. I can The moment I see it, I can clock it. And I'll be like, wow, that's iPhone 14 Pro Max. What is that like? And they're like, oh, let me show you the dynamic island and how the little notification works. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. I think luxury is luxury when you're not in it. But I think when you're in the category, when you're in the vertical, it Are becomes Are you just saying we're too
1: poor to appreciate we're luxury. too poor
0: in that vertical, right? We don't care about it, right? <laughs> but I think that are luxury attributes I like, right? I mean, Harvard, you know, that business school, that's a luxury school. I mean, the joke that we have is like, why pay half a million dollars effectively in terms of salary fee, school fees and opportunity costs when you could go to a local university for a business school that buys a lot of Harvard business school cases for the underlying curriculum, Or you can example it yourself, right? You could do a DIY or you can do online course, right? And one thing I noticed, for example, online, when we do LinkedIn and we looked at different, we're looking at different degrees of different folks. And yeah, it's just, there aren't a lot of people who did online certificates at a local university, right? They do online certificates in business school, right? In Harvard or Stanford, those up to their online courses. And their courses cost about like $2,000 for an online video course as a professor and so forth. But you get a certificate? So, But yes, the certificate is like 10 to 100x more expensive than what's available for other online courses. I mean, that's a form of luxury, right? It's like there's a signal effect, right? They're saying like, hey, I learned online marketing from Harvard instead of learning it from a great professional marketer on site. So I I just think there's an interesting dynamic where like luxury is performance, but you have to belong. You have to have that signal acquisition slash vertical, right? Anyway, that's my random pots yeah
1: i guess maybe to tie it back to the sort of themes of the podcast right what do you think we can learn from luxury or like how is luxury relevant to southeast asian founders because like another thing that was interesting was like there are no real asian luxury brands just like there aren't really any american luxury brands i mean outside tiffany which lvmh also acquired partially it's like For the U.S., like the history is shorter. You just didn't have time to like have a 500-year-old leather goods house or something. And then I think in Asia, we don't have like that long. We have long history, but it hasn't been around brands. Maybe outside of Japan, where they have certain artisanal products that have been, I don't know, like the guy's been making mochi since like the 10 hundreds or something like that. But it's not really like a good that you wear. Who do you think has potential to build like an iconic Asian luxury brand? Does that exist today? Um, Or is there no point? Like we're too practical a people. We don't need luxury. We're content to buy European luxury. We don't need our own. Well, I think there are brands
0: obviously that are Asian, right? I mean, the biggest one I can think of is SK2, right? Isn't that Japanese story about, you know, it's a PNG brand. It is a P&G company now-owned brand. So P&G spotted a brand and they were like, okay, everybody loves Japanese cosmetics. So I'm just saying that there's a Japanese story, there's a Japanese brand, but yes, it's owned by the mothership, P&G. I think a lot of people don't know that actually. So this is actually a fun fact for a lot of folks. But yeah, yeah P&G owns it, Procter & Gamble. And I actually met the brand owners, marketers who work Yeah, there,
1: it's Pro- like yeah. the sake, yeah, the sake line. hands. you know, you.
0: And then they discovered that their hands are super soft because they're massaging sake. And I was like, that's a beautiful story, right? I mean like I'm a sucker, right? For this kind of like Japanese craftsmanship. But but I think Japanese cosmetics, for example, is a form of Asian brands. I think story. I think I was really But
1: I I I think that's premium. I don't think that's luxury.
0: Luxury attributes that make it premium, but not yet ultra lux. Yes, I agree. Yeah. Well, okay. So let me I, I think obviously I think I think about it in two ways, right? I think it applies very much to Southeast Asia direct-to-consumer startups who are often are thinking about consumers. They are standing consenting consumer. And actually, I think there's some other lessons that are generalizable to folks who are not direct-to-consumer. They may be B2B, they may be platform, et cetera. But I think the direct-to-consumer is the most obvious, right? I think for direct-to-consumer, the tricky part when you do D2C is that you have bits and atoms, right? So you basically are, you can be shipping furniture, which is our consumer, all right? And you can be shipping cosmetics, right? Which is the other end of the scale. And obviously in direct consumer, you have to probably sell mostly a lot of that stuff would be physical. But I think what's interesting is that as the good becomes higher value, smaller, less logistics, then it becomes much more about the marketing, the story, the, all the various aspects about it that makes it more technology startup-like to some extent, whereas if you're doing furniture it's hard to get past the warehouse, the logistics, the in-person visitation and experience. And so you end up looking more like a conventional business. So I do think a little bit about that is I think as we go up the premium scale, I think you start to see like people start to build different types of approaches, right? i give you an example it would be like snacks, right? <laughs> salted eggfish fish snacks, very popular in Southeast Asia, right? And like they start out just with salted eggfish fish and then fish skins, right? And they're super crispy. They're just like Potato chips. And then now they're making all kinds of like various versions. I was like going to the store and they're like seaweed flavor, they're truffle. And yeah, you're right to say it's not luxury, but I I think that's that.
1: $8 for a bag of chips is a little bit ridiculous. That's true.
0: It is luxury. I think, I think that's it is luxury. I think I've seen more expensive than that as well. I think the more fancy ones. And you know, I was just thinking to myself, like, wow, that's a really interesting march, right? I think to create that. SKU breath, right? From normal soda egg fish to premium truffle flavored. I wouldn't recommend that taste flavor profile. I tried it because I was a sucker. I paid it. It was not good. Not a good combo. But I think there's an interesting, I'm just saying like underlying lessons in marketing, right? How do you make it more premium? Truffles a common premium thing, right? So what do you think about luxury? How do you think it applies for Southeast Asia startups and how they approach it?
1: Well, I mean, I think this idea that, uh, like, what does it say about you versus the actual features of something? I think there is something about that in software or B2B. And maybe this is a bit of a stretch, but it's like, why does everyone use, I don't know, Salesforce? Or like this old phrase, like no one gets fired for buying IBM type of things. So like, to what extent can you give people the feeling like this is the bar, this is the standard, this is what great looks like that is kind of separate from like the actual underlying features. I think that's like an interesting idea on like how do you want to be perceived and also like how do you get that idea out into the marketplace? Is it through working with trade groups or certifying organizations or things like that to give you that Aura of, like, officialness and like being the standard. I think those are interesting ideas to me uh, in convincing people like, that it isn't just about feature parity or feature comparisons. And then I guess the way they use spokespeople. So, like, luxury is about evoking lifestyle, right? So it's like, I mean, in the newest Tiffany ads, right, it's like Jay-Z and Beyonce or whatever. I think that's like an interesting thing too, right? Which is like, this isn't just yet another ring or earrings or whatever it is, right? It's like communicating with people that you recognize. And so how do you communicate some of these ideas in a way that is instantly recognizable to people? Like who embodies your brand or like who you'd want to be associated with? And I think we don't really think about like, marketing that much to your point Jeremy like we we get very focused on like what's the conversion did they click the button but like sort of taking a step back to be like hey what's the story we're telling why do people use it how do they sort of grok what's being sort of communicated to them versus like the literal funnel progression steps
0: Hundred percent, right? Which is, I think, the closest we get to it is a little bit like, how do we think about word of mouth? How do we think about referral marketing, right? And in order for someone to say, "I refer you," they have to be proud of using you, right? I mean, and if you are like, I don't know, like your utility, like a nail clipper, but I love the nail clipper, it's super, but it's at home, nobody uses it. It's never going to come up in everyday conversation to be like, "Please go to Lazada and look for the lowest price nail clipper." that has these two features and that's the one I recommend. You wouldn't say that and it wouldn't be a referral marketing, it wouldn't be attributed. I think the closest we get to it is maybe like, maybe we talk, talk about net promoter score, right? You can talk about how likely are you as a customer to refer this brand to a friend or colleague, right? And for you to do that, you have to be proud, you have to be conspicuous consumption, you have to show it off and you gotta be like, yeah. And I think we sort of see that a little bit, right? I think we see that for example, like your Zenium, right? A little bit, right? They're like, okay, they're trying to make like a premium toothbrush. I think it's a little bit hard to talk about a premium toothbrush because I don't really go to your bathroom and like, wow, that's a cool toothbrush you have. And then what do you have? But I think there's that piece where they have that marketing to be like, this is the toothbrush that you feel happy using while you're in the mirror. And what's interesting is that Xenium was invested in by L-Cataton, right? Which is a venture capital fund that was funded by, like you mentioned earlier, LVMH. So there is actually a direct link, not just of course of ideas, but also capital, right? From luxury goods to VC fund, right, El Calaton, to startups. I think they also did Sociola in Southeast Asia. They've obviously done Silavi as well. That's the, the club at the top of MVS. So you see the spread, right, Sociola to Zenium to the club on top of Marina Bay Sands. So I think there's an interesting dynamic here, which is, and I think there's always that debate, right? It's like brand marketing versus performance marketers. In fact, actually, I just saw a, a job description last night and it was like, here's the marketing right which is an important executive role and as it must be very strong on performance marketing and i was like it was quite interesting right it was like brand marketing is obviously secondary in this job description and i think there's that a decision that every founder has to make right which is like how do you divide right i think performance marketing is always the most in vogue because it's measurable well, attributable
1: it's, yeah so okay so i i have do, i do have thoughts on this which is i would say heads of marketing and startups are the hi- hardest people to hire because of this divide. So if you look at people who are more traditionally trained, like they came up in a Unilever or a PNG, they're more brand people. And they've managed big budgets, but it's done via agency. So like your brand manager at PNG has like not literally done a Google AdWords like ad themselves. Like they don't actually know how to do that. They've outsourced a lot of that to agencies. And then on the other side, you have performance, right? Which is like very mathematical and quantitative. And pretty tactical, and so as a startup, you're like, okay, well, which background person do I want to hire? And I think in the early days, you end up with more performance people because, like, what is the point of spending on brand when like nobody knows who? You, like, you don't even have one working channel, so you spend on brand for what? Right? It's like literally setting money on fire, and you're still actually also trying to figure out who your customer is. So I think the other part of marketing is like can you narrow the definition of your customer enough that you can find good channels for them? You can't be like, my customer is everyone, because then your marketing gets really diffuse and isn't very effective. But then I think over time, as you build either organic or performance channels, brand investments make sense, and you actually will see lift across all your channels if brand is working. But you need to have a working channel, I believe, before you invest in brand. Uh, And the problem is like, Performance people tend to be very quanty, and brand people tend to be really fuzzy. And you actually need both, right? Because marketing is still evoking some emotion in your consumer. And so it isn't just like, I've A-B tested 100 versions of copy and image and this thing converts best. That's one way to approach it, right? But part of that equation or that conversation is also like, who's my customer? What do they care about? What are they reading? What else have they considered in my space? Like, why is this an interesting offer to them? Like, so I I think you need kind of both those skill sets. but historically what I've seen is that in both small and large startups, the head of marketing is a really hard role to hire from. The turnover is super high because the other complicating factor is that the founder may or may not have a marketing background. And so the founder might be like, okay, I hired you to be in charge of this thing and let's say they come from more a brand background, they start like running campaigns and spending money, but you don't see any impact. Then the founder's like, what the heck? We spent all this money, I see no impact, what's going on? You know, they kind of get canned or whatever, or you have a performance program, it's working well, but you cap out. You can't push that channel anymore. And that person doesn't necessarily have the background to like do the brand stuff on top. So that's why I think like this is a really hard role and you need like both like the left brain and the right brain types of people to get it right. And honestly, like, I would say even at our startup, like, the first time we hired brand people, it was like they were speaking a different language. I was like, what are you talking about? They're like, our voice, our story. I was like, numbers. How much money do you want to spend? What is it going to deliver? It was a big mental shift. But then, like, when you actually see the ads and the campaigns and you measure, like, we did basically, like, we tested brand campaigns in like 10 matched markets. So we ran brand in 10 markets and then we looked at lift between those and 10 markets we didn't run brand ads in. And you can definitely see the lift, right? Which was amazing. But also there is this learning process where you're just trying to understand what are these people saying? And why does it like sound like goobledygook? It sounds like hand wavy and they still wanna spend money. sorry, I'll get off my marketing soapbox rant.
0: Well, I think you're right. It is very hard to hire for this role. And I think I've definitely seen a lot of folks who get fired from this role. And so there's a lot of turnover because it's a very hard conversation, especially because, like you said, there isn't necessarily a marketing function beforehand. What I would add to that is that actually, like you said, the founder is the first marketer in the company, right? Because if they actually got to the point where they're able to raise money enough to be able to hire a head of marketing, they probably have gotten very used to selling to consumers directly, figuring out their conscious slash subconscious driving levers for sales. And they often do maybe the first ads, the marketing copy of the headline, the landing page. Like the founders are the first marketers, right? And so I think they have actually a lot of clear thoughts about what they have, but they also have a large subconscious awareness implicitly about the brand. And I think the founder, when they hire this person, has to be very aware of all of these things because... If not, they end up making a decision, which is, do I want to trust this person with the whole thing or do I want them to act as a subset of my knowledge and provide me action and leverage on things I don't want to do? And I think that thing, that drive has to be very clear. Otherwise, I think I've noticed some founders can find someone who's really good. They just clash because the visions of how the brand has evolved. And the founder thought they wanted to hire that person, but it just turned out, no, I'm still a person who is the guardian of this brand right now for this early stage. Versus like you said, it's like, I have a big vision. I want to push it off, but this person is a performance marketer and it's too like low level, too tactical for me to really trust this person. So I think that's really, I think a bit of discussion. One thing I was think about and often talk about is like the core word of marketing is market, right? And what I mean by that is like marketing is often seen as the company communicating to the consumer, right? But I also think about market, which is what does the consumer tell the team right in terms of changing the product features campaigns and i think one thing i noticed talking about your divide between performance and brand marketers is that both can fail if they don't use the time to really understand what a consumer wants right and because at the early stage of the startup there's so much tweaking that needs to change right persona customer journey buying map even just like just like what the features they want right is all of that keeps changing right and i think they I think marketers can get a bit of a shock when the product is changing underneath them, right? Because of the response to the feedback that's happening. So I think being, I think a great marketing officer is a great communicator, like you said, both on brand and performance, but it also great at product market fit iteration, which is so hard to do. Like you're like a mini founder because you have the consumer so well.
1: So maybe a different question, Jeremy is like, what brands do you think are doing a good job? Ooh, ooh. Like, what early emergent brands were? you're like, hey, when when you say this name to me, I instantly am like, I know what they stand for. Mm. I I know who the customer set is. Like, I I have a real strong sense of what they represent. Like, Uniqlo, your favorite.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, they've been growing like crazy all across Asia because I think for them what they realize is that people want great clothes, high performance. But I mean, I wouldn't say it's a luxury good. I mean, is this- No, it's not, it's it's not, this is, you know, I think we're off of luxury
1: altogether, right? But brands that communicate their value proposition like pretty clearly, right? It's like, I don't know. I think of Uniqlo and Decathlon kind of similarly, right? Yeah. It's like ubiquitous. You're probably gonna find the thing you want. It's not gonna be like break the bank expensive. Is it going to be like the highest quality thing? Probably not. Yeah. But it's okay. It does the job that you want it to.
0: I think, I mean, this is a weird one, but I don't know if you've seen Don Donkey, which is the Japanese market. Yeah, yeah. And then the joke is like, how many don- donkeys can like Southeast Asia absorb right and a lot a lot, right? more,
1: more than one ever could have imagined <laughs> I, I was just like yeah it, I was just
0: mind blown about not only how fast they've grown but actually the revenue numbers are amazing if you look at their top line numbers they're reporting they're like know, better than a lot of startups honestly in terms of GMV the profitability is just off the charts it would have been a great startup to invest in as an angel investor maybe not as a Series A investment. What, what
1: is, what is Donna? I think Donald they're
0: making data? millions and millions. And it, I think every time they do, they're just profitable pretty much from year one to some of the basic numbers. I'll have to pull it up and hyperlink them later in the report. But I think I think what they do a good job of is, I think, they, for example, that side is they allow people to try the space multiple ways, right? I think they target, for example, the obviously the shopper who wants to buy Japanese goods, the Japanese person who wants that local authentic item. That's obviously most Japanese specialized markets go for that. But then they're also going after like the lunch crowd, people who want quick takeout, right? They're on Grab and they're selling online food as well to allow people to try different items. They have snacks. I think they allow for a lot of different experiences that basically have kind of like, I don't know, scaled this category way more. If you ask me five years ago, how many Japanese supermarkets can there be? I'll be like one in every neighborhood they're kind of like crushing it. So that's a very weird, weird company that I I think of that's doing well. How about startups? Any startups that you think of that are doing well? I'll do a quick one. I'll do a shout out to Ordinary Folk Portfolio Company. There we go. So Sri I did a shout out to Fragile at OnLoop last week. Oh my
1: God, we forgot about David. David listens to us when jogging. And so David, David run faster.
0: Yes, run faster. Go crush those legal cases and run faster. There you go. You're probably like wrapping up the workout already ordinary folk i think you know they're targeting a very difficult conversation right which is obviously erectile dysfunction premature ejaculation (laughs) obesity hair loss these are very difficult conversations which there are lots of pharmaceutical compounds to help and solve for them and the truth of the matter is that at the end of the day nobody has really tried to market to the asian consumer right especially for folks who are 50 60 70 years old and this is a very interesting category because this category is not an instagram this category (laughs) Is probably on WhatsApp. It's probably walking around, you know, like I think there's a very interesting online and offline channel mix that has been done. So I would really respect the founder for, I think, cracking the code in the various markets and localizing the campaigns using local celebrities and influencers to kind of like get there. So yeah, that's one brand I think of.
1: I don't know. They're not really a startup, but I mean, one championship, I think it's interesting, mm, right? This yeah. Asian martial arts idea, right? Yeah. So it is pretty distinctive from like WWF, or like the more American types of leagues. And so you kind of have the feel of it, that sort of Gen Z esports slash mixed martial arts audience.
0: Yeah, I think Which One Change is is really interesting, right? They're obviously fighting with mixed martial arts, right? And I think that's a really interesting dynamic where they're trying to bring Asian athletes, but also the Asian audiences and kind of like, they actually kind of like divide the world in two a little bit. One there's one for the West and one for the East, right? Quite interesting.
1: Yeah, but I think it's also like in terms of like understanding your audience, right? Which is like, they really try to emphasize hard work, discipline, like all these sort of like traditional Asian value types things in the athletes versus like the spectacle or the controversy. So I think that's like an interesting tactic that they've taken to try to push their brand.
0: Yeah, because, you know, Ultimate Fighting Championship, UFC hasn't cracked Asia, but I think one championship is also trying to crack America. So it's interesting. Duality, right? In those two sports leagues, kind of like trying to bring in. And it's interesting because it's a meta brand, right? It's a promoter, it's an organizer. But their job is also, they need to bring out these like rivalries, right? These matches, these families, these lineages. These are the things that I think it's an interesting mix of, like, obviously startup in the sense of growing very quickly as sports and organizers and promoters. But it's also a very interesting marketing way to bring up the human story, right? I mean,
1: because- that's the best part. But, like, the Burmese champion, so when he was fighting, there was this crazy stat that, like, 70% of all TVs in Burma were tuned into the fight. So, like... The narrative works, right? It's sort of like these national champions that then are like gonna do battle on these like regional and like global stages. So it's more of a collective than just Conor McGregor or whoever. I, I know nothing about fighting, clearly.
0: Yeah, I mean, obviously we talk about this we have to mention Manny Pacquiao, right? Obviously the Philippines, right? Probably like the first OG, like boxer, what politician, <laughs> humanitarian. I mean, this guy is like really done it all. And I remember like as a kid, I was like watching him, right? A little bit because people just tuned in, right? He was one of the first Asian folks to actually hold in his weight class. And I think it goes back to that story, right? The marketing story, right? It's like, it is a very human story, which is a very luxury form of marketing. I think every athlete kind of has that when it becomes a celebrity, right? It's like, it's like, it came from nothing. And I think it was interesting. Oh, I, I remember I was reading about Robin Heinlein. He says like, there are three stories in the world. The first is boy meets girl, and then the second one is the better tailor, and the man who learns better, right? And so the What's first the one be- is romance, romance, it's romance is like boy meets girl, boy doesn't meet girl, boy meets girl too late, boy meets one, and it's like, but it's the, and it's for romance, right? I'll mention the last one pretty much, is the man who learns better, he's basically like, he starts at one point of view, then due to a whole bunch of different experiences, at the end of the story, they... The person has a different point of view, right? That's it. So it's this a, it's this more like a reflection or journal. It's very like Japanese actually. And then the better tailor is the ones like, is the classic hero's journey, right? Which is the person starts out, overcomes a whole bunch of adversity, starts from nowhere, gets something, lose it all again, and then eventually crushes it. The count of Mount Cristo and so so forth. Like, and I was like, oh, that's a really good thing. And I think like, you look at Nike is a good example, right? The athlete story, the great book I read and. This guy's a founder, right? I mean, the founder of Nike, he built it from nothing. I was just listening to the story. I was just like so pumped listening to that story, I remember. And how he get, he kind of localized the Japanese brand and then he got Japanese money to be his first like VC slash funders. I think Nike was a startup once upon a time, right? Even though we didn't. Of course.
1: You know, you of know? course. So yeah. my business partner, Elizabeth, really wants to have a theme park. And her theme park is like an entrepreneurial theme park where you like, learn the stories of all these founders and are inspired. And I was like, I don't want to be part of this theme park. And she's like, no, no, no. I was like, this sounds very CapEx heavy. Like, I'm not sure I would invest in this. But she's like, no, no, with VR, we could bring everyone to these VR journeys where they're like, you could be there in the garage with Hewlett and Packard. You could be there with Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak when they put out the Apple IIc and things like that. But I do think stories are so important, right? To inspire us, to give us ideas, to make us think that there is an alternate version of reality that we can create, especially for founders. You need to see stories of success to believe that you can do it when things seem like really, really shitty.
0: Yeah, and to tie it all the way back again, we started out of luxury and conspicuous consumption. I think luxury brands have that narrative, right? They always have that narrative on point. And And they also help you, by purchasing it, tell that story about who you are, right? I mean... I always remember like a big sucker for Philip Patek, right? And they was like, you don't own a Philip Patek watch. You just take care of it for the next generation. And I'm like, okay, I'm not into like all these other bags, but I love this like legacy and parenthood. And I keep telling myself like, come on, I don't wear a, a normal Candace, watch. Here. take
1: note. He wants a Philip Patek.
0: <laughs> no, I have. Well, I kind of disagree really do. But, <laughs> but I keep telling myself, I should, there's no point having it. I'm I'm happy to wear my normal Apple watch and... So and so forth for the functionality and so, and so forth. But yeah, I, I think there's, there's something to it, right? It's like it's got that cheat code, right? It's like, yeah, I, li- I like that, right? And I think humans, we've tried to pretend we're rational bias, but we're not. We're just like barely there hanging on to this giant limbic system of hormones and feelings, right? And identity is like that big piece, right?
1: For sure. See you 100%. next week. <laughs> See you cool. next week. awesome. Take it easy, man.
0: See you next week.
1: <laughs> See you next week. Take it easy, man.
0: Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyow.com to discuss this episode with other community members
1: in our forum. Stay well and stay brave.